0: This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Today's guest is former Attorney-General of Australia, Michael Duffy. Michael began his life in the law as a solicitor in Melbourne before turning to politics. He served in the Hawke Government as Minister for Trade, Minister for Communications and finally Attorney-General. As we will hear today, Michael has worked alongside some of the greatest politicians and leaders of our time, not only in Australia but around the world. None, however, have been more influential than his wife of over 50 years, Carol, a passionate teacher and lifelong Labor member. But despite being politically aligned, Carol did not share Michael's enthusiasm for ALP conferences and events.
1: I got her to go to a conference of the Labor Party in St Kilda Town Hall. It was the conference that Whitlam spoke at, finally, about the withdrawing the troops from Vietnam. But we needed votes and we needed as many votes as we could get. And I said, are you come along to this conference? She wasn't that keen on it, but she said, all right. We went to it and after it I got talking to a few people and uh, I got in the car and went home. And I'm driving down the and Highway and I gave Jock Nelson a lift and we got to Sharman Char- to Road. And I said, Jock, I'm going to have to turn around here. And he said, why Why? Why where are you going? I said, uh, I've left Carol at the... And kill town hall, and he said, "You've what?" And I said, "I forgot she was with me because that was a place you wouldn't find her at the conference." So said,
2: Carol that, sounds like a saint to me, Michael. That, one, that was a
1: great day, that one.
2: Welcome to Lives in the Law. Very kind of you to come in today. In delving into your life in the law, let's go back to the early days, your childhood. You grew up in Albury.
1: Yes, I did. We moved to Albury when I was about six.
2: In a very, what was a traditional family for the time of the 40s and the 50s, your mum was a house mum, your dad was a bank manager and then an insurance manager. And so it intrigues me with that sort of background by the time you are in your early to mid-teens, you were what we call today a, poli- a political junkie. You loved politics even when you were a young kid. How did yes, that come did. about?
1: Well, it was a period when, even when you were very young, there was that period where there was the Royal Commission into the Communist Party after Petrov. It was on every, you know, I was then probably about 14 and it was everywhere. And, uh, and that sort of thing went on and then there was the election, of course, not long before that in 53. And uh, I just liked politics and I liked listening to a bloke by the name of uh, Fraser. He was the member for Eden Monaro, a journalist. And uh, if you listened to him on a Sunday night, it was generally radio, of course, in those days, um, you had to have an interest because he was, he was smart and he was articulate. And... Uh, that sort of started off and then my father had a lot to do with the New South Wales government at the time for funding of the Mercy Hospital in Albury, which he was the president of. And so I met a few of those people and uh, only odd people because Albury was a very conservative place. There weren't too many Labor people who ever came near it. But uh, that's where it, I think, started. And then the thing that accentuated it, Michael, was clearly the split in 1957 in the Labor Party Um If you had any interest in politics, you sort of saw what was happening there, which was pretty grim stuff.
2: Very grim stuff. We may get to that. So just taking down the law path, Michael, you go to Melbourne University. Yeah. You said you were an average law
1: student. Very average law student. (laughs) A resident at Newman probably didn't help me much because there was... When you had nowhere else to go, it was a bit of an excuse not to go over to the university <laughs> unless
2: you had to. In my time uh, at Melbourne University, Michael, the residents of Newman were renowned for their drinking capacity.
1: Yeah, but you, you didn't
2: see them for the first two terms of the year. They only turned up yeah, in third term.
1: Didn't catch me that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a teetotaler.
2: So you finish university, you do your articles of clerkship, which was like a, an apprenticeship for lawyers yeah. in those days, and you established a one-man practice in Queen Street. I found it very interesting that... Um, the names of the other legal practices in the building could have been a Catholic Irish mafia. You yeah. had Minogue, Galbally, Prendergast, O'Sullivan, Hennessy, and along comes Duffy.
1: Jack, and also uh, Jack Carroll was in that building. Carroll, too. yes, yes, yeah, great bloke. So,
2: how did you go about establishing a practice as a young solicitor?
1: Oh, it was pretty tough, Michael. But I, I, I'd been. Article to Brendan McGuinness then, for for family reasons, I went back to Albury. Then I came back to Melbourne and uh, I worked for McGuinness for about another two years. And I didn't quite know where to go. Um, McGuinness, of course, had anyone, the people who worked there, most of them were very big successes at the bar and they all started in the licensing court. And he used to say to me, why don't you do that? And I don't think I ever quite explained to him why, but I I didn't think I had a sufficient interest in the law per se to go to the bar. Uh, I mean, you go back to people you know now, they talk the law a lot more than I did. So I, I decided i better do, do something else, so I started on my own. It was pretty tough, got a bit of work from those people, uh, mainly McGuinness because he he ran into uh, problems with conflicts quite often because he acted for so many hotels and licence grosses, that things like that would crop up regularly where he couldn't act. Yes. And when you were starting on your own, they weren't bad clients to have some of them either.
2: Because they all had money and I guess we need to tell people today that back then um, liquor licensing was a significant part of a legal practice for those who did it. And you had to go before the Liquor Licensing Commission or the liquor court to have your licence approved and you had to jump a lot of hurdles and prove a lot of things. So it did require... A significant amount of work by a solicitor to do to do the licensing stuff,
1: and and so many of them came from that practice. Uh, Brian Burke, of course, he did a lot of that. So did Peter O'Callaghan, yep. and and <laughs> he didn't stay down there very long. But Alex Chernoff did a lot. Uh, the former, the former governor of Victoria, <laughs> governor of Victoria, it was an interesting place to be. Uh, there was no doubt about that. And tell me. I understand in, in that when you started on your own in the practice in
2: Queen Street, you did a lot of divorce work which
1: could be controversial. Well, it was then because we had, it wasn't no fault, of course. It was an awful jurisdiction. I mean, no wonder it was changed. It was appalling. I mean, you, know, you had private detectives running around and the and the worst one, I think, was the constructive desertion when you had to tell a woman, well, yes, you've you've got a big chance here but you're going to probably have to leave if you're going to be hit again and this sort of stuff. And they were the ones you're worried about, well, I hope hell I'm right. And some of those were, of course, where other lawyers had conflicts because if you'd been in practice a while, there was a big chance you'd be act, you, you would have acted for both the parties that ultimately yes, divorced. Yes, of course.
2: Yeah. So that practice has got I I'm very busy but you didn't have enough work to bring in somebody else and so it got difficult and you... Turned to your very close friend, Brian Forrest, and you decided to open a practice out in Dandenong.
1: It was it was a practice that was not big enough for two, but about one and a half. So we then opened an office in about 1970 or 71 in Dandenong, and it grew to the point that we had to close the Melbourne office eventually.
2: It became busy, as you said, But you were never just a lawyer. You also devoted a lot of your time to community involvement in the Dandenong community. You were on the board of the Community Advice Bureau, helping with legal advice. You were chairman of the Dandenong Youth Employment Project, involved with the local football team. What caused you to have such an interest in your community and make such a contribution to your community?
1: It goes back a bit to the fact that I think it goes back. My father was very involved in those sort of things uh, in Albury to a very large extent, and um, he always sort of, without preaching to you when you're fifteen or sixteen, he used to say quite regularly, you know, you've got to have some involvement in the community, and uh, and uh, I certainly didn't want to do what he did, but but uh, but there was that, and I think I um, I just thought that whilst things were better than they used to be in the se- sense of, of social security. In those days, it was even more needed in various ways, although I don't know whether that would still be the case now when I really think about it. But it was all of those factors, I think, um, Michael, which needed to be show some interest in it. I should have done a lot more, but I didn't. But
2: Was that also the motivation behind your involvement in politics? Because you joined the ALP in 19... 19- 64. Yeah. Um, come 1980 you're elected member for Holt in the federal parliament which is a seat centered on Dandy Nong. Yes. Was there a crossover there your political ambitions, your political interest and the involvement in the community and being a lawyer, they all sort of came together in you being a local member?
1: Well, yes, they did, but the real thing was that it was the political interest at that stage thinking of things you thought were important that was more than that. And when I joined the Labor Party, the people I knew best of all were John Cain, Dick McGarvey, Frank Costigan. They were all the people I knew most. And, and all, course, all
2: very famous names. And, in are,
1: the, and are all lawyers. In the life of Victoria. But at that stage, that was a group of people who, had, who were working very hard to reform the Labor Party itself. I mean, it was not in a, in a, in a happy place in those days. And if there was a swing in the uh, council by-election in Maui, the executive would claim it was a big result uh, and that was about the only time they would be happy. So it was it was that, I think, to a large extent. And then I became very involved with them. Then early 70s I was on the local representative from the electorate of Isaacs where I lived to the state conference and then I went on from the state conference to the federal conference and then on to the executive of the Labor Party. So it flowed through and a lot of it, I would have, I, looking back, I think a lot of it would have been harder, a lot harder if you didn't have some background in the law. I think today a lot of young people do law and they get a bit disenchanted with it pretty quickly. That shouldn't stop them doing law though because it's a, it is a good discipline and it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that I think you can put to a lot of other uses. So you don't have to practise the law mm-hmm. if you don't want to. I've always thought I'm glad I did it did law. There were many times I wondered wondered why I did, but it it was a discipline. It was a discipline in thinking about things, understanding some things that uh, are, when they're very legalistic, very hard for other people to understand. So I think it was a combination of all those things, Michael.
2: And it seemed to me, Michael, you may have um, finessed the party a little bit, by not living in uh, your electorate? You actually uh, lived outside the electorate? Oh, yeah, but th- th- That would be on the front page of the paper today if uh, Well, you were yes, it that. wouldn't
1: have been much of a story though because we were living in Mentone and the boundary was, was Springvale Road. <laughs> it was only raised once in the elections in 1980, 84, 87, 90 and 93 and nobody took any notice of it because they thought I lived there. Yeah. Now it becomes more crucial. I think it should be less crucial now, in fact, as long as you're in your electorate when you need it. Yes. I don't know whether it matters much where you sleep. I also thought that
2: there may have been uh, another personal influence on you who said she wasn't going to be leaving Mentone. And
1: no, <laughs> no, she was not. And she she was very, very accommodating, Carol, about all of this. But she did really arc up on shifting. I, I tried that and I... Um, Tried it very hard and I'm pleased that eventually um, I had to concede that one with, with what grace I could show.
2: <laughs> so you're elected in 1980 a member of the opposition. In 83, the ALP wins government under Bob Hawke and you're appointed Minister for Communications. That's right. Um, I mean, that's that's a big jump in three years to go from a, 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 a fresh and new backbencher to a minister or were you in the cabinet in that with that ministry?
1: No, two, three years later. I knew Hawke a bit because he used to come to Nong a lot, but uh, it was a bit of a surprise because only three people went into the ministry who came in in 1980: Hawke, Beasley and myself. It was interesting because I was very close was, with John Button, and Button really liked communications. He wouldn't; he would have liked that portfolio, but he preferred industry. There was a quaint thing that came along and that was Hawke appointed John Button as an assistant minister and let me tell you, that did not work out. An assistant to you? Yes, as well as being industry minister. Was he
2: really there to look over your shoulder? Yeah,
1: he was. And there was a couple of arguments going on at the time where I thought my career in politics would be very uh, short, Um, or as a minister at least. uh, John and Bob disagreed with me over how to treat the then chair of the ABC, who was sort of the only Cramer. And I got a question on it in the house, was ready for it, got through it. But as I finished, Bob led across to me and he said, uh, could, could have had a real go on that one. And I said, well, you, you and John Button are the only people who think that. I had no idea of how directional the microphones were. And immediately John Howard stood up and said, I moved that so much of standing orders, <laughs> be allowed in order that I can move a, a vote of no confidence on this issue, you see. And I thought, this is good. I'm, I'm going, <laughs> You're, going pretty well here. You've now, brought about a no confidence motion against your own government. Yeah, then it wasn't long when a letter came in one day from Hawke saying um, this is to advise you that the, uh, the joint membership with John Button and Communications uh, at his request has been terminated and um, I thought, well, I'm not unhappy about that. But we got on a lot better, there was a gap in our both our careers where we were pretty pretty short with one another, so
0: William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system but our wider community.
2: Michael, you mentioned that your next job after communications was the uh, trade negotiations portfolio. I think I've read somewhere where you said it was the most interesting job that you had.
1: By a long way. Why was that? Well, it was an area which I had only a passing interest in. But once you got into it, within about three months, I thought this is the most interesting portfolio you could have because at that stage there was a huge dispute between the partners to what was then the GATT, now the World Trade Organization, over subsidies. The worst offenders were probably the United States, Germany, France, oh, and the European community, I'm sorry. <laughs> they were specials. And they distorted things by by propping up industries with subsidies, and particularly in the area of agriculture. Australia had fought pretty hard to get agriculture on the agenda, but they couldn't really get it running. It was never on the agenda, and we managed to get it on the agenda. That gave us a lot of power. When you were chairing that, that 14 countries, when you so, were. I'm sorry, Michael, you say 14 countries. That's the
2: CANS group. That's the Cannes group, I'm sorry. Yeah. And so the CANS group were these nations, that, including us, also Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Hungary, New Zealand, Indonesia. They came together to give themselves strength in in unity yeah. against the might of the US and the might of the EU. And so this CANs group comes together. Maybe I think maybe in the mid eighties. Yes. What role did you then play in in the negotiations? How would how did it play out for you?
1: Well, the Cairns group was formed in Uruguay, so that round of negotiations were called that. It was in a place called Punta del Este, and that was driven by John Dawkins. But he had got people together in order to get some idea of whether he'd be able to hold those people together and whether he'd be able to, whether they'd stick together when the new minister came in. Well, it went, it went very well because you had the opportunity of not going to, say, the European community and the United States or both of them, of saying, look, I'm here to put a position from Australia, but you better understand I'm not only putting their position, I'm putting a position of 14 countries. And just as a matter of interest, it's now a lot more, the uh, CanS Group, it's now about 18 or 19 countries. And they used to stick through some very tough times. They managed to get agriculture discussed and dealt with in the way that had never happened before. And it was so fascinating to be chairing that sort of a group and then you'd get to a conference. They had conferences all the time. And you'd find that someone was going a bit soft on a couple of issues and you'd have to pull them all together again. When we are in Montreal, the whole round, that's the Uruguay round, very nearly collapsed because we were so far apart that we couldn't get anywhere. We pulled it together and away it went again. It must
2: have been enormously satisfying for you, representing Australia, to play a significant role in putting this group together to then be at what really was the big table with the US and oh, the yes. US. Oh, yes,
1: and Dawkins put it together but someone had to continue it and 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 it was not easy because... There were, you know, some of the countries were pretty diverse, particularly Chile, and uh, uh, they they sometimes would want to do something else. Brazil was another one that had its own thoughts at times. <laughs> my 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 old friend Michael Moore, who was then trade minister in New Zealand and later prime minister, he always had an idea that that you'd think everything was settled, and then you'd have to go back and talk to right. him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it really took some some uh, patience in negotiating, which I, I don't think if you ask Carol, I don't think she'd say patience is my greatest virtue, but it had to be. Yeah.
2: Now, you mentioned New Zealand there and the, and the uh, Prime Minister to be, Michael Moore. You also did a lot of work in bringing Australia and New Zealand closer together in our trade relationship. Yeah. Myself as a typical Australian, I would have thought at least since the First World War and the time of the Anzacs, we are always close with New Zealand, I
1: but guess, our trade relationship needed to be. It needed to be smartened up. I mean, the what was called the CER, the Closer Economic Relationship with uh, New Zealand, had f- really fallen off the table a bit. There are other matters that always seem to overtake it. I think, from memory, there are about seventeen reservations. We'd met agreements on a large part of the trade portfolio, but not in seventeen matters. It had to stop because you wouldn't probably think that now, but they were then about our fourth largest trading partner and a lot of that was, of course, motorcars. And uh, and they were important to us in so many ways because uh, it has to be close and it should be. Uh, if you're not close to New Zealand, you've got a problem getting on with people.
2: And ultimately the Kiwis honoured
1: you for your work in this area? Yes, they did, which... Uh, it was almost embarrassing, I thought, but they did. And uh, the well, either the Cranburn or the Danung paper said Duffy joins the Queen Mother and uh, and Hillary. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Sir Edmund Sir Hillary. Hillary. It's a different sort of order to anywhere else. It's there's only thirty members of it, and you, and no one else goes in unless someone dies. So it's a fairly small group of people. And this is the order of New
2: Zealand, yeah. and you're uh, the only Australian. Ever to receive
1: it? Yes. i tell you a story about that too. Bob Hawke said to me one day was he, he um, was laughing about something one day and he said, and by the way, said, that order of New Zealand, the, the order of the white cloud he called it, is that the one I've been offered? And I said, no, Bob, the one you are offered was for another thing altogether. I said, most of the prefects at high school's got it.
2: which <laughs> slowed him down a bit. Could Bob take a, a joke against oh, himself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael, you come from the party which is um, considered to be the more regulatory party, the ALP, and yet you've got a strong belief that free trade is the only system that works in the world. Yep. I'd like you to explain that to us, particularly in the context of the two biggest economies in the world at the moment, the US and China, putting up barriers for trade between themselves.
1: Yes, well, see, after the Second World War... The United Nations comes along and then there was later than that all sorts of other organisations, World Health Organisation, and then there was the GATT, which is now called the WTO, World Trade Organisation. They came together because they'd seen what happened leading to the Depression in the 20s up to the 30s through there and then the war came along and one of the best things that came out of it was that there was a necessity to have regulation, have rules about trade. Because it was a classic example, a classic example, Michael, of unless there were some rules and some things that people could not do, it would be the rich get rich and the poor get poorer all over again, but worldwide. If you look at the 1930s, uh, a country like Argentina, for example, it sort of built a wall of tariffs around it and, and all that sort of thing and it just collapsed because other people say, you can't do that to us because we'll do the same to you. And then there is no trade. And if If there's no... You're stuck
2: inside your own walls. If there's
1: restrictions on trade and you're not trading, well, what what does Australia do? I mean, particularly in those days it was in agriculture, but it's wider than that now. It's in services, it's mining services, tourism, all those sort of things. It all collapses. And anyone who's thinking otherwise, uh, they're just not getting it. I think that what's happening now is it's showing the poisonous atmosphere that can happen with not good trade rules. I don't know whether he, he understands it or not, but when you think about what President Trump's doing, I don't know whether he actually thought he could do that and China not respond. And then it gets that that doesn't finish with China and the United States. It spreads to other countries having to respond. And unless you can settle those disputes, you finish up in terrible strife, and particularly a country like Australia, which depends so much on trade.
2: And Michael, after that, your most interesting job in trade negotiations, and I can see why uh, you say that, you move on to what doesn't sound as interesting on paper, being Attorney General, being in fact the senior legal officer in the Commonwealth of Australia. Now, I guess for lawyers it's a plum job maybe the plum job. Did
1: you see it as such was it something you had aspired to? Oh yes, I always I always thought that one day I didn't think it would happen but I thought one day I would like the Attorney General's portfolio. And it was interesting because I followed Lionel Bowen of course and I followed him in every portfolio. Oh really? He was Postmaster General and then he became Trade Minister. And then he became Attorney-General. And I used to talk to him a lot about when he was Attorney-General. So,
2: Michael, we all know what an Attorney-General is. He is the Senior Legal Officer for the Commonwealth of Australia. But he hasn't got a specific portfolio or an area of responsibility, such as trade or such as communications. Is there a definition of the Attorney-General's job?
1: Well, it changes from time to time. Let's go back a bit. I mean, if Garfield Barwick was Attorney General today, or Lionel Murphy was Attorney General today, they would do a lot of litigation themselves. Uh, but over a period of time, Sorry, can I by
2: litigation you mean appear in court yeah, they used to as, a peer as, in as the courts.
1: advocate for the? Not always, but they did. A, they used to on occasions. Yeah, that's changed because, uh, with the greatest respect to uh, some of us, I don't think that was our field. And Mark Dreyfus could do it if he decided to, but he's too busy with the current shadow Attorney General. Yeah. So you have then within the Attorney General's Department, Solicitor General, who does that, but is in the Department of the Attorney General. But then you had all the other things that were in the portfolio, the Human Rights Commission, and all the discrimination legislation was administered by the Attorney General's Office. The courts, the Attorney General's Office, dealt with the budgets of the courts. Then there was the the appointments, appointment of judges, uh, which you uh, could have ideas about yourself where you thought that if you asked the department for a list, it sort of looked a bit like the usual suspects, so you had to sort of be a bit broader than that, but you had all those things running at the same time. The other thing which was always there was, of course, if somebody ran into trouble with their own legislation, say it was the health minister, and they ran into trouble on, say, data matching and the... Um, Privacy Commissioner, who at that stage was Kevin O'Connor, would say, no, you can't do this. This data matching goes too far. Well, the next morning it would be the Health Minister saying, what are you going to do about this? I said, it's not my. what am I going to do? About it? It's your problem. But if you want a bit of advice on it, I'd suggest you get down and sit down with O'Connor and work it out. But I used to say to them in the office on a Monday, is there anything today that we are going to do which is solely ours or is it going to be another week of other people's problems? So if you add those to the, all the outriders, the, uh, as I said, the hu- human rights area, the privacy area, the discrimination areas, they're all in the Attorney-General's purview.
2: Can I go to one of those areas you mentioned, which is human rights? There seemed to, and I guess it happens with every Attorney-General, but in your time as Attorney-General, many significant human rights issues came up which you had to deal with such as detention of people before they were charged with a crime, the ratification of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Liberties, ratification of the Rights of the Child Agreement, dealing with the discrimination or the, the prohibition of gay people being in the military.
1: Yep.
2: Interesting things, and I would think things that you were proud of to have dealt with. And so I just, could we just, could you take us through a little bit about explaining that the people being put in detention before they were charged with a crime... Seems an abuse of civil liberties, but yep. it was a fact. Yep. What was that about? How did, how did
1: you work out a solution for it? Well, there was a move at that stage to change it. I can't recall now how many hours you could keep someone in, but I thought it was far too long.
2: Might, might have you been 24, I think I've read somewhere. I some
1: think word. it was, Yeah, I decided that we should make it eight without going before a judge or magistrate and getting permission to do so. In those days, people would answer you by saying, "Well, there's people who you mightn't get any information out of on a tax thing or a corporate thing unless you do hold them for a while." And I say, "Well, I'm not worried about them so much on this issue. I'm worried about the kid who's picked up in Footscray one night and is held for eight <laughs> hours, longer than eight hours, and what they might say." Or it's not very relevant today because, because of the problems with terrorism, those those periods of detention before charges. I know what they'd be now, but they'd be nothing like they were in 1990.
2: Does that concern you, that a lot of the civil liberties that you took for granted growing up and you took for granted when you were practising in Dandenong have been taken away because of the issue of terrorism? Uh,
1: Yes, but the solution to that I have not got. I think one of the things is that I still don't think that it should be left for too long before you get the consent to hold anyone without charge. And have that done judicially. That solves the problem yes. to a large extent. But I think it's the whole tone of it now where we're, we're not going to move back, I'm afraid, on that. There, the civil liberties will never be quite the same as a result of terrorism and it's a thing that if you want to get into an argument about it, you'll be wedged politically. Yes. And then people say the, the party that doesn't insist on it You know, it's lacking some moral fortitude. But the fact of the matter is they haven't got the numbers, they're not going to get it up anyway. So really the best they can do is to try and add bits on that might make it better. The whole thing is when you look at the civil rights we think of, you know, the political rights, freedom of religion, assembly, due process, we can keep most of them, but there are some that are getting harder and harder and harder and someone's got to find a solution to that. It's beyond me. I think that, again, if you can involve the judicial process within most things, whatever people think about courts and whatever they might be critical of judges and that sort of thing, they don't do a bad job. And on, that, the, on, the, on the whole area, of course, the international protocol, civil and political rights, what happened in that period, that had been in, a, in operation for a long, long while but we had not ratified two protocols really the most important i think was that it uh, we by signing that protocol we agreed that um, a complaint could be made to the united nations and 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 then to the united nations commission which was this is, this is the international covenant on civil and political liberties yes and that was that was because nobody could complain to the united nations that they had been badly done by until that protocol was ratified, yeah. so we ratified that. That
2: gives an individual a right to take an issue to the Human Rights Committee of the UN. Yes. And I believe a man named Nicholas Tunin.
1: Yes. Did that? Yes, he did. He, what were the circumstances of that, do you recall? He, he wanted to challenge the criminality of the laws on uh, gays and lesbians in Tasmania which made it a criminal offence. And this is in about in the 1990s, it's yeah. not 1890. He can do that but you've got to get a fiat from the Attorney General to go to the United Nations and we gave him that. I
2: gave fiat it. being an, an official approval. Yeah,
1: yeah, to yeah. go. And, uh, and, and, of course, that those laws disappeared.
2: Um, satisfying things to do, Michael, I must say. And then there's also the Rights of the Children Agreement. You sort of think, of course, with Rights of the Children Agreement, uh, everyone would be in favour of it we would immediately ratify it in line with other enlightened countries we'd, we'd think of ourselves to be,
1: and yet you had op- opposition to it. Well, there was no opposition to the matters which stood out, like uh, child prostitution, child labour, child slavery. But one of the arguments was it would remove the right of, some, of people to discipline their children. I mean, the sheer stupidity of it's unbelievable. But it ran, it ran, and it ran for a while, that sort of opposition. What it does do is you've got to try to get the basic rights of children, they're no different really to the basic rights of adults, and you've got to work to try and get those built into your own legislation. See, what people misread there is they say you agree with the whole principle but you're going to be run by the United Nations. It's this business about sovereignty. But that's not the case. You say we agree with all these things and we will work towards putting them into our legislation. But nobody has nobody can make you do it. It's just there that you've, you can do that if you want. You've to. agreed
2: to it in principle. Yeah. And it's up to you yeah. whether you
1: practically carry yeah. it out. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once you ratify, you're expected to do that.
2: Now, in, in ratifying the International Covenant on Civil and Political Liberties and the Rights of the Child Agreement, you brought joy to the heart of one of the great men of the ALP who then got in touch with you. Yeah. Who was that?
1: Whitlam, he used to send me faxes regularly, when is this going to be done, when is that going to be done? And eventually when it was done, he sent me a fax in those days which said, well done, comrade, you've offended with the stroke of a pen the President of the United States and the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Or a combination. He used to send none of the other portfolios, but he sent massive messages whilst you were Attorney-General, which of course he... That was his obsession. He was a lawyer yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. and he was a great man on civil liberties. Yeah. 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 and a great man, in my view, a great man in the history of Australia. and that sounds like such a golf story. that
1: yeah. uh, exactly sounds like golf. He, he, uh, he changed the complexion. I mean there were all sorts of reasons why people turned on him, that sort of thing, but he changed the complexion of Australia in a way that nobody else has.
2: Now you also had the uh, pleasure possibly, to serve as a minister in the government of another great Labor figure in Bob Hawke.
1: Yes. Uh, Bob, was a, Bob was a very interesting bloke to say the least but I think on his death there's been too much emphasis on the larrikin element of his life. That was a part of his life but it disappeared in 1980. People forget that. He didn't have a drink all the time he was in, in government. and. He did a lot and his capacity to work, Michael, was unbelievable. I mean, he could work hours and hours. And if you happened to be in the house at 11 o'clock at night and you'd want to talk to him and you rang him, he'd be in his office and you'd go down and talk to him then but he'd be back there at 7 o'clock or something the next morning. He had an enormous capacity for, to work and, and you could have clashes with him, uh, which I had, uh, particularly in communications, none of the, none of the others, And I remember for some time in communications when I first started, I used to think, I hope I don't run into Bob today because there would have been something that had cropped up, disagreement. I was wrong about that. He wasn't like that. Once it was done, it was done and it was passed and that was that.
2: And he wasn't a great hater.
1: If he didn't agree with somebody, it wouldn't make him hate them. He would simply say, you better work this out because you're going to have to work with them, he or she, in the ministry and that was his i think his greatest claim i mean i don't know how many he liked in the in the in the ministry and in the cabinet but there be plenty he didn't like but you wouldn't know in terms of even dealing with an issue um, and he was had a habit of course of uh, letting a debate go to a point where he where he'd decide there was a consensus when in many cases there were not but <laughs> but
2: uh, now he, he one of his means of relaxation of course was to indulge heavily in the noble uh, sport of kings. Yes, he Horse did. racing. He did. I think you and he may have had that in common.
1: We did. <laughs> yes. I w- he, would de- he would deny this and I shouldn't say it when he hasn't got the chance to respond. But I was never a very good tipster, but I was bloody better than him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've been a racing man all your life? Yeah. You have chaired Racing Victoria. You're no longer chairing it?
1: No, I finished in uh, 2013 and I was chairman of Racing Australia too at that stage and I, I retired simultaneously.
2: Like the punt as well as the horses and the racing and the, yeah, racing I do, the whole I'm,
1: thing. Not, I'm not very successful and that makes me a very moderate punter <laughs> by, by, by necessity.
2: I mean, but political life in general, I mean, we when we as observers look at political life from afar, we think it must be absolute murder on the partner of the member of parliament. And I mean, I think, um, what, one or two women have recently resigned from parliament for that reason, and men as well, because of the difficulty of maintaining a functional relationship
1: under the pressure of political life. There's no way no-one in my instance that I could have survived for 16 years without the support of Carol. She was quite remarkable, really. She's. Uh, uh, she's been, uh, you know, a fantastic mother and a, a great wife and, and somebody who, as I often think of, we don't have that much in common except basic values. We have all pretty much the basic matters. We're pretty much straight down the line together. But, you know, she doesn't like the races. She doesn't like football. She <laughs> she likes the cricket. So I set up watching that late at night. But I said, you know, it's it's hard to imagine how she did last as well as she had her moments uh, and, uh, and so did I, you do know, in every marriage. But, but it's been a great, a great 55 years and it was only really because of her. I couldn't have done it without her.
2: Michael, just to round it up, let's take you, uh, let's say a, a young Michael Duffy walks in the door here. He's 21 or two, he's just finished his law degree, and he's about to start on his legal career. What would the Michael Duffy sitting here, who is on my calculation currently 81 years of age, tell, tell the young Michael Duffy?
1: I think if you can, you want to do something in life you really want to do. You know, not something because you've got to do it or you're expected to do it because it's a long time. You're lucky enough to live a long life. You're doing what you've done. My choice is a lot lot easier. And secondly, I think they have to understand that there's no substitute for, for some hard work. People, they don't just land on their feet. And I think you'd say to them, you know, whatever you achieve, remember one other thing in life. To do what you really want to do, you've got to have a bit of luck. It's not just you. <laughs> and I think it's an important aspect of people's life. And I think you're asked a lot about the law. And a lot of people ask you, and I've said earlier, I think, in our conversation that I would never discourage anyone from doing law. I'd say, you know, you can do a lot worse than do law, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll practise it all your life. What I've done, I was lucky enough to do because I had the opportunity to do it. I'd do it again, but I'd do a few things differently. Wouldn't we all. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks, thank you, Michael.
0: Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find useful links, a transcript of the show and some wonderful shots of our guests. We're keen to know what you think, so please reach out via all the usual channels. Let us know the questions you'd like us to ask, topics you'd like explored or ideas for future guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, recorded and mixed by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We are coming to you this week and every week from the iconic County Court of Victoria on the corner of William and Lonsdale streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today.